I remember I was in junior high school when I was handed a little red ball of a snack. In fact, Chuck found a picture of exactly what I'm talking about. Those. And look what I found at Vallarta uh, uh, Supermarket. These ones, the difference are, these ones are like wet. So Chuck said he would eat one. I'm going to try to get my boys to eat one. But, but listen, they're really good. Yeah. When I, when I was a junior high boy and I was offered one of these, as all junior high boys, everything went straight into the mouth. And almost as quickly, it went onto the ground. It was the most sour, salty, spicy thing you could imagine all mixed into one. And hey, listen, I am a salty snack kind of guy, but there is a place, there is a limit to how much you can handle. Even if you're more, even if you like me are more of a salt person than a sweet person. But one thing as I was thinking about this particular experience is that when we think about salt, per se, we are thinking about our comfort. You know, we think about a particular dinner, and so we put a bunch of salt on it. Or we think about some particular snack, and we think, oh my goodness, way too salty. But when Jesus was talking about salt... He was talking about something you needed so that you can get some meat now and have something to eat in a month. He was talking about a preservative because it wasn't until 1913 that they were able to come up with refrigerators. So important was salt that Roman soldiers were given a salary. Their payment was often made in salt. And you've also heard that one is worth his salt. He is worth how much he or she is paid because they are able to carry their end of the load. So when Jesus comes to the Sermon on the Mount and he uses both salt and light as descriptors of what it looked like to be someone who would follow after Jesus, a friend of Jesus, one who abides in Jesus. He wasn't talking about something that we add for our comfort. He's talking about something that is essential to life. Jesus called us salt and light because both are necessary for our existence. You and I are salt and light. You and I, therefore, need to communicate. We need to spread. We need to make famous God's glory. Necessary for our existence is not only salt because it makes our cells work, not only light because it enables our eyes to work, But it is we are necessary to make known the glorious God that makes life work. Because God is glorious. He is worth more than a million pounds of gold. Or he is wiser than all the doctors of the earth. And he's more powerful than all the armies of the world. But not everyone knows this. You are salt and light. You are absolutely necessary to spiritual life so that those who are around you can, perhaps for the first time, know this great God. 
Go, therefore, and communicate God's glory. Go make him famous where people don't yet know him. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching us when he gets in the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He writes, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a light nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You are salt and light. Therefore, communicate God's glory. I want to give you two points tonight, and I'm going to let you fill in your blanks because some of you are OCD like me, and you got to have each and every blank filled. So I'm going to fill them for you right now. The first point is that we need to remove sin's disguise. Sin disguises itself. It makes it look pleasant, look good, and you think, oh, yes, I want some of this sin. Part of what it means to be salt is to take that away so, so, so sin looks like sin. And the second point is we need to manifest or demonstrate or clarify God's glory. We need to make God famous, not because he's not already worth being famous, but because not everybody knows the great God that we have. So let's begin with the obvious. And the obvious here is that salt and light both resist and they reveal. We're going to be using those words a lot. Salt, as you know, is a preservative. You add salt to meat so that it will last longer. Salt, in the right quantities, acts like an antiseptic. It kills the bacteria. Now, they didn't know this 2,000 years ago, but they knew that it worked. If you put salt in a meat then, and you do it in the right way, then it'll last for a long time. Now, it's often noted that salt is also a flavoring. And if you're like, I don't know, Michelle Winger, and you put salt on everything, you wouldn't do that if almost every bite of meat you ever had was full of salt. You wouldn't think of it as a flavoring. You would just think of it as, this is what meat tastes like. So I don't think that that's really Jesus' point. His point is that salt is a preservative. It is something that kills that which will corrupt. Likewise, we, the Christian, resists. We resist sin. We resist the sin that corrupts our heart and the sin that corrupts the society around us. We remove sin's disguise. We make it plain because it is gross. It is terrible. It's, it's wicked. Our job, <clears throat> as it were, is to act as a change agent, one who brings about change. We dispel sin and corruption wherever we are. We show the lie of sin by living our lives showing exactly how trustworthy God's promises are, and how terrible the lie that God's trustworthy, that his promises are not trustworthy. You are 
also light. And light is an illuminator. Our job as light is to manifest that which is, but isn't noticed. We reveal, we manifest, we declare God's glory. Our job, as it were, is to act as a change agent, one who brings about change. And the way we do that is by displaying or putting on a billboard the righteousness and goodness and truth and beauty of God wherever we are. You are salt and light. Therefore, go out and communicate God's glory. So we began with the obvious salt and light both resist and we reveal. And we continue with the obvious because we need to understand where Jesus makes this saying. You cannot understand Jesus' teaching about salt and light unless you first of all understand where it fits in his sermon. Because remember, his sermon is a unity. It tells, it makes a point. And here we find out that Jesus just got through giving the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes describe the Christian's character. Their description of what a Christian looks like. And this answers the question, as it were, why does salt and light work? It works because it is absolutely opposite from what is in the world. Salt works because it kills the bacteria. Light works because it dispels the darkness. And then Jesus goes through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and he describes what this salt and light, what this difference that is found in, this, in the Beatitudes, what this difference looks like in a lot of the different situations of life. So, if your question at this point is, how do I become salt and light? I've got a really easy answer for you. You don't. It's because you are already salt and light. I like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. He said, we are already light and the call has made us so. The fact that Jesus spoke your name before all eternity makes you already salt and light. You are salt and light. Therefore, communicate, declare, manifest, make clear God's glory. Now, your question should be, how do I live as salt and light? That is a good question, and in fact is the question we'll spend the rest of our time on, and we'll spend a lot of time on answering throughout our Sermon on the Mount series. So let's break down our passage. Let's look at our passage tonight and see closely, clearly what all of these metaphors, all of these verses that Jesus is using mean. So verse 13, let's start there. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now much of the salt that was found around Palestine in the first century was found in kind of a powdery form, and it was mixed with a lot of other impurities. And so you would 
go certain place and you'd see some powder over there and, and go dig it up and you'd look at it and you'd say, that's salt. You know, and so you'd take it home and you knew that there was going to be some impurities in there. But unfortunately, sodium chloride, what you and I know as salt, gets leached out. If there's been any rain or any exposure, it washes away. And so that powder you spent all this time carrying back to your house, you get home, and if you haven't tasted it to see if there is salt, it's worthless. And so there's, there's some evidence that what would happen to this powder and it had these chemicals, they'd go up on their roof, and they'd throw it on their roof because their roof was made out of dirt, and if they ever did have a good rain, it would just leak right through. But they would throw this stuff out and they'd trample it down. And by trampling it down, it sort of made the roof waterproof. Not what we would call waterproof, I'm sure. But the point, Jesus' point is that if Christians live as Christian in name only, they're good for nothing. They're not even worth throwing on the roof and stomping it down so that it's sort of waterproof. Matthew 5.13 tells us absolutely nothing if it doesn't tell us that we must not be like the world. Remember, salt and light work because they're the opposite of what the world looks like. So, we have to ask ourselves this question. How do we go about being different? In what way should we be the opposite of the world? Should we dress in 1800s uh, clothing styles? Is that different enough? Should we not go to any movies? Should we only listen to country music? (laughs) Does it mean that we have to be weird if we're going to be Christians? My answer to that is, of course it doesn't mean that we have to be weird. To be salt means to be different. But how we go about being different is a question that it takes enormous wisdom. And listen, if you were here for my doctoral series, one of my points is, your answer to how you look different and my answer to how we look different might be a little different. But it takes wisdom and it takes effort and most of all, it takes prayer and saying, God, how do you want me to be different from the world? Of course, this makes obvious the answer to the next question, what happens if we fail? And the answer is we all fail, so it takes an enormous amount of grace. That's not enough of an answer though. It's a true answer. It takes wisdom and it takes grace. Fortunately for us, Jesus' four verses here points us in some pretty interesting directions on what it looks like for you and you and me to be different from our world. He gives us some principles that we can use in making our decisions on how to be different. Again, You are salt and light, therefore communicate God's glory. So, under the first point, resist. Remove sin's disguise. However it is you choose to be different than the world, make sure that how you are different enables those around you to see that lie of sin. 
Because make no mistake, sin is a lie. It is every sin, every temptation to sin is pointing you in the direction that says God's promises don't work. God's promises aren't true. God's promises won't be good for you. And when you begin to start thinking about your temptation and saying, what is it that this sin is wanting me to doubt about God? God will reveal that to you. He will show you, and then you will be able, by God's grace, not because we're so smart or so powerful, that's certainly not true in my case, but by God's grace, he will enable you to resist and say no to sin. And you will be able to remove sin's disguise, and people will look at you and see that, and they'll say, man, I want to be a part of that. Amen? Secondly, we reveal, we manifest, we declare God's glory. Make sure that however it is you choose to be different from the world, that you enable people to see that God is glorious. I'll give you an example. Yesterday I was driving up to San Luis Obispo to see Melissa Haley's uh, memorial service, and I got right behind a Maserati. I don't know if you know what a Maserati is, but I just had to look it up. My sin, maybe. I was looking it up. It's a $126,000 MSRP car. You know what was interesting about it? That car was behind the exact same truck going 60 miles an hour that I was. Oh, sorry. That might be sin right there. I don't know. (laughs) And I don't know if you're a Maserati fan or not. I have my own things that I lust and covet after, so I can't, I can't judge, I can't condemn the man who bought that car, because if I had that much money, I wouldn't buy a Maserati, but I'm sure I'd buy something else. But here's the point. As wonderful as a Maserati is, God is better, he's truer, he's more beautiful, He is worth pursuing harder than 80 miles an hour down the freeway. He is worth every sacrifice, every decision to say, I don't want a Maserati. Live like this. Live like a person who is pursuing goodness, truth, and beauty instead of all of life's Things and people will see that you are weird, you are different, you are manifesting God's glory. The fact that He's better than any car and every car on earth. You are salt and light. Communicate, declare, make clear that God is glorious. Verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are light, period. That's what you are. And, and there's, there's no way around it. You can't hide yourself. And PG is going to get to that in just a second. And so, if as light, you are going out into the world and you're showing an insecure, fearful heart, what are people going to see? They're going to see a God who is untrustworthy. They're going to see a God who isn't as glorious as a Maserati. 
So why on earth, if that's the kind of God you have, should I get up early on Sunday morning? Now, you and I know why we get up early on Sunday morning. The reason you and I get up early on Sunday morning is so that we can be trained and equipped and empowered and enlivened so that we can resist, we can remove sin's disguise, and we can reveal, we can manifest God's glory. The best image I've ever seen, heard of this, is you are a telescope. Now, a telescope does not take small, insignificant things and make them big so that we can see them. A telescope reveals things that are really far away, but they are absolutely huge. I want you to look at a picture here. In this picture, number one, you see Mercury, the smallest of the planets, and you kind of come over here, and there's Earth. Now, in picture number two, the largest in each of these, the largest one is the smallest one in the next set of slides. So Earth is tiny compared to Jupiter. You see that difference there? Now, Jupiter, next to Jupiter is a really small planet, uh, Um, star. In the center is the sun. And Sirius, which is trivia question. What what star is Sirius? The dog star. Polaris is the north star. Yes, the dog star. I love that. But look how big Sirius is compared to the sun. And then you get over here and you have Sirius compared to Aldebaran. Now, Aldebaran is this little dot compared to this, Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is uh, one of the, the stars in the Orion constellation. And then you get the uh, Betelgeuse compared to Canis Majoris, which you can't see because it's in the southern hemisphere. A telescope makes it possible for you to see Canis Majoris. doesn't make it bigger. It just enables us to see something that we already should just be astounded by and just go, oh my goodness. You are that telescope that shows people that God is huge and we are blind. We are the kind of people that cannot or will not see the glory of God. And every single one of us, including us, every single one of us needs to have a telescope in front of us to remind us how great our God is. Because you know what? I forget about how great God is every single day. Amen? Anybody else in here with me? We need that telescope to show us. You are salt and light. You are the telescope that communicates God's glory. And you don't put a telescope under a bushel. You don't put it under a bed. You put it on a lamp. You put the lamp on top of a stand, and it gives light to the house. Now, I want you to get what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is using sarcasm. I, 
I really am trying to repent of sarcasm. I use sarcasm too much. I don't know. I try not to do it in my sermons, but um, Jesus here is being sarcastic because what he's saying here is, listen, dummy, pay attention to what I'm saying. Nobody takes a bushel basket and puts a lamp underneath it. If for no other reason, because that bushel basket is going to catch on fire and then you're toast, right? You lose your bushel basket because, remember, lamps back then were burning flames. So Jesus is reiterating this idea, the ridiculousness, the absurdity, like, oh my goodness, how dumb can you be, idea that a Christian would not just naturally, just from the inside out, both resist sin and reveal glory, But let me put this using some other authors in, I think, a more memorable way. You know that 2 Timothy 3.5 says they, these quote-unquote formal Christians, I'll describe them in a second, have the appearance of godliness, and here's the key, but deny its power. We're going to get back to that in just a second. They have the appearance of of godliness, but they deny its power. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian. I mean by that one who has the name but not the quality of a Christian. His, Martin's idea is to put your lamp under a basket is to become utterly useless because lights essential quality, the thing that makes light light, is its brightness. And if you lose your brilliance or your brightness or or salt loses its preservative quality, it is absolutely useless. So is the Christian who merely shows up on Sunday and sits in the pew and walks out. A friend of mine put it this way. He said when he first started going to church, his his wife drug him to church. He said, yeah, these guys are glad that I show up because I put a $20 bill in the offering. Let me me just say this to you now. If 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 that's your mindset, please keep your $20 bill. Now, if, if $20 is all you can give and you love Jesus, give your $20 bill because God will bless that. But if your attitude is, oh, here, let me help you guys out. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't need us to bless him. Let me give you another quote. The same idea, this one by Gordon Fee. I think this one kind of clarifies a little more what Paul's getting at. These, what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is calling formal Christians, they like the visible expression, i.e. they like the music, the decoration, they like what happens on Sunday morning. They like the aesthetic practices, maybe it's liturgy or being seen as holy. I really like how he puts these. This is all a quote from him. And they like the endless discussions of religious trivia. Boy, that hit my heart. And they're thinking themselves to be obviously righteous because they were obviously religious. Okay, now let me get to this question. What does Paul mean by denying godliness's power? To deny godliness's power is to deny that 
my trusting God's promises for me in Christ right now can enable me to be a better man or woman of God, can enable me to have the strength, the grace, the mercy to carry out God's commands. To deny godliness's power is to say, hey, I can suck it up and I can do what I need to do and God will be impressed. God save us when that is our attitude. And I have been guilty of that attitude many times myself. When we deny godliness's power, we are denying that Christ is able to actually work in us and through us to become God's tools in his kingdom. And don't miss this. This is absolutely crucial if you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ You need to understand that by obeying, by trusting his commands and promises, he will work in you that which is good. A couple of years ago, I counseled a woman who had recently attempted suicide. And a non-believer who was familiar with that situation and is actually quite close to me, told me, very near quote, he said, Greg, she cannot change. And his, his point in saying that was, don't waste your time. Don't get involved. Just in, you know, her, push her aside. Now, this person who said this to me doesn't even pretend to have a shred of godliness. He's not a Christian whatsoever. But it struck me then that this is as clear a denial of godliness as power as I have ever heard. It's saying God cannot and or will not come in and change a person's life. Now he says this because he doesn't believe God exists. But you and I must not say that. I don't care what problem you are experiencing. As long as there is a heartbeat, there is hope. Not necessarily hope for worldly, earthly life. But hope that God can change the heart, which is exactly what must be changed. Amen? If you deny by just forgetting God's promises... You will be what many people have called a practical atheist. You will be someone who shows up at church and puts in a $20 bill and goes home and thinks, I did my God duty this week. And Martin Lloyd-Jones calls that the most utterly useless thing in the universe. And I think he does so rightly. You and I are salt and light. We must make it clear to as many people as are around us. God is glorious. And he is able to change people's lives. Because if God can save my father's son, he can save anybody. And a large part of what makes God glorious is that he is not only willing, but he is able 
to come in and shape and mold and twist and straighten and rub off and take iron and sharpen that iron that's within you and make you the person that inside you long to be. Now, unfortunately, that's not going to happen completely on this side of glory, but it will happen because he who promised is faithful and he will not let you go. You, my friends, are salt and light. Communicate God's glory. Negatively, this means resist sin, remove sin's disguise, display how absolutely, how much folly sin is, how foolish sin is. Make that clear by your attitudes and actions. And positively, communicating God's glory means to reveal God's glory. It means to open eyes like a telescope to what is really real. Now, we come to the last verse of our passage, and Jesus spares no punches, and I love how he works sometimes. And he gets down to brass tacks, and the question has to be, what does Jesus expect of those who would follow him. What does Jesus expect of his friends? Well, he tells us, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And because they see your good works, they will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's an old saying, you show me your redeemed life and I will be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. Now, many of you have heard me quote that before, and I have always said that that was uh, Voltaire who said it. Well, I thought to my, the the odd idea popped into my head. I had to look it up, and I think Voltaire said that, but I found it attributed to so many different people. I'm like, well, I don't know who originally said it, but it really doesn't matter, because right here in verse 16, Jesus anticipated that question, that statement. And as it turns out, Oddly enough, so did both Peter and Paul. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Notice, Peter did not say if. He said, when they speak bad about you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter wants us to live in such a way that though people don't like us, because in us they see us standing up for Jesus, they have nothing bad to say about us because of how everyone else around us see us live our lives. So they may kill us, but they know that There wasn't any reason we deserved it. But then the question is, how do we go about doing what Peter's talking about? Well, fortunately, Paul explains how to do it. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you can look at this, these two verses, 
And you can say, by God's grace, remember, because it, it doesn't come from within here. It comes from God's grace. If you can look at your life and say, this is what I'm doing by God's grace. I'm going to him. I'm abiding in Christ. I'm living for him and through him. If your life is characterized in this way, then you will be the salt and light that Jesus calls you to be. And you will communicate God's glory. Now, it will be a whole other sermon to unpack those passages. But let me say that for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be unpacking this in one way or another. So, hang tight. But there is another fair question to ask. There is a rub, so to speak. Jesus says, and only a few verses later, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So what is it, Jesus? We do our good works so God can glorify, be glorified, or we don't do our works so that people can see us, and then you don't get the glory. Well, I think most of you understand this already. As with many areas of life, it's our motives that determine whether our attitudes or actions are sinful. If we are doing something so that people look at us and say, oh, what a great guy he is, we're toast. If we're going about our business and by going about our business, trusting the promises of God for us in Christ, we are communicating the glory of the God who is, but isn't always seen, then we rejoice and will give glory to our Father in heaven. You are salt and light. Therefore, communicate God's glory. You know what's funny about these? I, I think about the saladitos nowadays, and I think, I like spicy food. I like salty food. Uh, so why is it that they prove too much for me? Well, it, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of how you grew up. It's a matter of what you want. And taken spiritually, I think that the answer would be something, well, they haven't been given grace to be able to appreciate the salt and light that Jesus makes us to be. And Paul gives us a really interesting paragraph. And I just, I'm not going to preach this paragraph, but I want to just introduce you to the idea. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, be, excuse me, he says, But thanks be to God, praise Jesus, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For, the reason this is true, we are the aroma of Christ to God. In other words, we are taking the salt and light metaphor. Now he says we are the aroma of God. We are the aroma of God to God. He says... Uh, to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, the fragrance from death to death. And the other, fragrance from life to life. And who, oh my goodness, is sufficient for these things? What he says, God leads us around in our lives. And sometimes he gives us, leads us through joyous times. Sometimes he leads us through absolute awful times. 
But he does it so that we are in all these situations and wherever we need to be so that the people watching us will see and smell the glory of God. And the world notices. Paul says they smell us. To some in this world, we smell like the smell of death. And if you would ever smell the dead animal under your crawl space, under your 1,100 square foot yellow box in San Bernardino in the hot summer with 120 degree weather, hypothetically speaking, of course, if you have ever smelled that fragrance, you hate it. You want to get rid of it. You hate smelling this death. And so you want to do everything you can to get rid of it. That is how the world thinks of us. Because when they smell God, they remember that which they hate. And so they kill us. They persecute us. They push us away. But to others... God smells like life. And so they come closer and investigate. It's like you go and you you smell a flower and you think, oh, fresh. And they discover that the difference that they see is life itself. The promises of God for you in Christ. But now notice in both cases how the fragrance smells is in the nostrils of the one smelling. Your job and mine is to be salt and light. Your job and mine is to be that fragrance that God can then use to bring about his glory. You are salt and light. Therefore, go and make God famous. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we give you glory. We aren't even worthy of being vessels of bringing you glory. But Lord, you have chosen us to. And we ask that you would show yourself faithful by living in and through us so that people will smell, they'll taste, and they'll see the glory of the one who saved us. Enable us by your Holy Spirit's power, by your grace to be that instrument of spreading your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.